Welcome to Junior to Senior, the podcast for ambitious devs who want to take their career to the next level. I'm your host, David Gutman. Today, I'm joined by Brian Redbeard Harrington. Redbeard, welcome to the show. Stoked to be here. Really excited. So for folks who are just meeting you for the first time, want to tell us a little bit about you, what you do? Sure. So I am a dyed-in-the-wool Linux nerd who kind of got started with uh, systems hacking and stuff back in the 90s, messing around with BBSs and kind of graduated into working on building uh, data center technologies with a real focus on Linux. And for the past uh, over 10 years, I have worked for Linux operating system companies. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that I find so cool about that is just how foundational some of those technologies are. And it's very different than I think the uh, more, I don't know, consider somewhat like surface level stuff that that I've worked on. So how did you how did you go down that path? Why did you why did you decide to get into that instead of making, you know, chat apps or uh, <laughs> things like that? Well, that's the beauty of it is that it was not intentional. Uh, you know, I started my career working for uh, an internet service provider, which meant that I was troubleshooting T1 lines and DSL. And you know, I started in basic tech support. And I just was so fascinated by everything that the organization did that you know, I was at the very beginning of my career. And I started looking around at all of the things that were being done. And really, I was most fascinated by the networking aspect. So I started like asking if I could, on top of my day job, come in after hours and basically be an unpaid intern to the lead network engineer and just be an extra set of hands to like hold up a humongous like six, Cisco 6509 router when he needed to like put in the screws in exchange <laughs> for just asking dumb questions. And you know, he would sit and laugh, but in the end, it seems like it was really the right decision because I learned a lot and it kind of stoked the interest that I had in uh, systems design even more. Yeah, that's super cool. So, what? Yeah, what, when you proposed that, like, what was that conversation like? Was it was there any skepticism on their part, or was it just like sweet free labor? Well, it there was a little bit of both, but it definitely required a small amount of demonstrating that I was earnest up front. I mean, not to like a fight club level of just standing on the front porch endlessly. But, you know, it was... Oh, you didn't get hazed? Uh, before, uh... Yeah, no no hazing. But it definitely was like, you know, I was interacting with all of these folks on a regular basis because, you know, I am on the support team. You know, I've got a customer who's calling for the umpteenth time that, you know, they're, it just rained and their T1 line once again isn't working. And, you know, I have to go to different teams and go, hey, is there something going on with a portion of the network? Or have you seen this sort of problem before? And coming from that sort of background, what it meant was that I had to get good at asking questions and 
since it was kind of early in the days of the internet, it meant that the kind of incumbent idea that you really research a question well before you go into IRC and ask, or before you <laughs> kind of go bug people. <laughs> RTFM. It, yeah. So that you didn't end up getting that kind of hazing type response was important. And by doing that, it meant that the team saw that like I was going to do the research before I asked a question. And it, even if it's a dumb question... Like, I tried to figure out the answer. So, you know, take the effort or it's going to pay dividends to hear me out and know that that might be the only time I ask that question. And then I level up a little bit and am able to keep going. Mm. You bring up an, a, an important topic, and that that's the um, asking questions, uh, especially also, I think I think this has been covered. Uh, a number of times, the idea that that you know, if a junior developer is on a team, one of the worst things that can happen is that they can get stuck and not not tell anyone. Um, a little bit different than than I think what you're talking about, but it's sort of that same thing. I think there's this this fear in a lot of uh, cases where somebody is junior and they don't want to bug, you know, the senior members of the team. They don't want to pester them with questions and. That can either just be because, you know, shyness or, um, you know, uh, not really wanting to impose. But I think there's also other times where, you know, they might have seen or been on the receiving end of that uh, um, ire, so to speak, (laughs) of, uh, you know, why didn't you research this? And recently, I just had a series called Ask the Experts, and Scott Hanselman talked about uh, something that was really important uh, for him, which was being in these safe environments to ask questions as being something very, very important is being able to ask the right questions and being in places where you can you can get those answered. So did you feel that that it was the environment that was very you know helpful for you or was it more like what you're saying that like you you kind of put in the work to make sure that you didn't get a backlash like how much of each of those is is important i'd say about 60 percent of it was the environment and about uh 40 of it was kind of the own or my own internal experience and kind of the re- reciprocal feedback that i was uh both getting and giving up when mm-hmm. asking questions but you know the points that scott brought up are really good like One of the worst things that can happen, and this is something I have been guilty of for a long, long time, is not spending too long before you ask the question. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. it one of the best skills that you really can have, especially when you're early in your career, is balancing that fear of asking questions with developing a sense of vulnerability so that it's okay to expose yourself a little bit and like be a human like mm. when you're trying to work with other people you you have to be a human <laughs> and i think there are times when we forget that and we want to be you know no feelings only programs and <laughs> like unfortunately gonna be the slickest corporate robot ever <laughs> <laughs> yeah i it's it's definitely a hard challenge but uh when you can find those relationships where you have a good mentor mentee type uh, dynamic it 
can really be the slingshot that amplifies how much both both sides can get done. Mm-hmm. For me, I'm also thinking about like because because I'm no I'm no angel. I've definitely had a lot of juniors <laughs> ask me a question, and um, you know I've actually kind of gotten into it with one of my my engineering managers where. Uh, a junior asks me a question, and instead of just like answering, I start asking questions back, trying to figure mm-hmm. out, tr- basically trying to uncover an assumption that they had, um, and because there was a misconception somewhere, and so I was I was asking back these questions, like you know they they, they were like, why is the sky blue, and and it was more <laughs> me being like, where did did you have a conversation like where you heard that the sky was blue, and then they're you know it's like trying to trying to dial it back and and he definitely really got you know got upset with me saying you know come on man just like give him the answer like why are you why are you doing this um and it's it's sort of stuck with me for a while uh you know thinking about that and I, i i i guess kind of the reason why i bring this up is like do you do when when there's a let's say there's a junior and they're asking you a question how much do you feel like a responsibility for really educating them or just kind of giving them the next nugget that like sends them on their, on their way? Oh, it's, it is a hundred percent in the education camp. I mean, Mm. so the, one of the companies that I was at was, I was an early employee at the YC company called CoreOS. And after you know we got up to the point of having about 50 employees i started doing a thing every single friday where it, it was called coros university and we basically someone from the team picked a topic and they would have 2 to 3 hours to really expound on that topic the intention behind that was to take areas of expertise and share them and level up everyone who wanted to attend. And, you know, it, yes, we did things like, you know, I did a seven-week uh, class, if you will, where we covered one week at a time each layer of the OSI model. Um, hmm. And we had other folks who would come in from the design team, and they would give a presentation on color theory for a few hours. And I remember other leaders at the company going, come on, why are you doing this? It's just a waste of time. And I was sitting there saying, okay, if we can have front-end folks that have a better sense of uh, just even color dynamic, they're going to mock up things in a way that makes less work for other teams. Mm -hmm. And it's all about pattern recognition. And to like the inverse side of that meant that, you know, I am right there with you where there were times when I probably should have just given somebody the answer because it would have been the expedient thing to do. But I am a firm, firm believer in uh, the idea from this old uh, punk band called Citizen Fish. You know, they had a song where one of the lines was take the path of most resistance and feel Mm -hmm. good when you arrive. And I really, I believe in that almost to a fault. So, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) there is a balance to be struck, but, it's really important to me to empower other people to be able to think through problems 
understand the foundational blocks and build upon them so that they have a rock solid place from which to spring off of for yeah. whatever they want to do next. Yeah, I like that a lot. And it definitely makes me think of the the saying where it's if you give a give a man a fish, he can eat for a day. But, you know, if you give a fish a man, he can eat for a month. Wait, no, that's that's not how that one not how that one goes. <laughs> makes a happy fish though. Yeah, yeah. Um so okay, so so I'm curious, like yeah, tell me tell me more about how you got involved with core or uh, core OS and and what made you yeah, tell me about that. Yeah, so I had been at Red Hat on the consulting team, which just for a little bit of historical context, you know, if there's one thing that you take away that your listeners take away from this, it is get good at memory and pattern recognition because those are the things that start to allow you to glue together bigger thoughts. And when I joined Red Hat Consulting, one of the first things that I learned was that, oh, this is actually just literally the company VA Consulting that had been part of VA Linux um, and VA Computers, which for the older folks there, like this gets into like the origins of Slashdot and ThinkGeek and you know, lots of really old school Linux things in the 90s. And Red Hat kind of brought in that team, scraped the name off the scraped the name VA consulting off the door, put up Red Hat Consulting, and just left it alone for well over 10 years. So that meant that there were a lot of really happy folks on that team. Hmm. So I went from being kind of the the person who knew the most about Linux wherever I happened to work to once again being the journeyman. And oh, it was really exciting. That's fun. That's cool. And I, you know, one of the big things about doing consulting work, especially if you travel for it, which I did, I was a hundred percent travel, it meant that I was seeing different problems all the time. And so that's where it kind of comes back to pattern recognition and the kind of more meta idea of taking in those experiences and then being able to say, okay, you know, I haven't worked in this industry before, but this is the same sort of performance problem that we have when there's, you know, a thundering herd issue on this other situation. So I wonder if the same kind of solution will bear some fruit in Mm. resolving whatever's going on. And through doing that, you know, I traveled all over the country, you know, I kind of, uh, there's a lot of developers that have that dream of being able to, uh, like, rent a house in Costa Rica and just work remotely and, you know, live off the, uh, not necessarily the fat of the land, but the fat (laughs) of their own uh, productivity. And it wasn't quite like that. But effectively, what happened was, is since a customer was paying to fly me to wherever they were every single week, and then paying to fly me home, they didn't really care about where those plane tickets came from or went to. Hmm. So it meant that I had the opportunity to, you know, maybe Monday, I have to fly to Columbus, Ohio, and then Thursday or Friday, I'm going to fly home. So home this week will be Seattle. And then next week, home might be Los Angeles. And Hmm. the week after that, home would be Chicago. So I got the opportunity to travel a lot. And being involved in like hacker circles meant that 
there were friends everywhere who I would normally get to see once a year at DEF CON in Las Vegas. But now I can just kind of go through my contact list and say, hey, what are you up to this weekend? And if folks are free, then I can come hang out and it actually doesn't cost me anything. And so <laughs> through that, you know, I and I've kind of met a lot of fascinating people. I've been in a lot of really interesting kind of compute environments. And years ago, uh, you know, there's been a weekly event uh, that our mutual friend Elliot runs called Hacker Drink Up. And a different mutual friend uh, named Scott Nichols um, went to college with the two founders of CoreOS. And it was this crazy confluence of events where on, you know, in January of 2014, um, Scott approached me at DrinkUp and said, you know, my, my friend Alex has got this crazy Linux thing that he's kind of working on. And he needs folks that know what they're doing since, you know, they're a super tiny company. And I think you should talk to him. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll follow up on that. And then I got back to the hotel room. And, you know, I am awful at checking my personal email, um, especially when I am like traveling and kind of running between airports and everything else. So it turns out that Alex had actually already emailed me and oh. said, hey, I saw what you I have seen a bunch of your open source contributions on GitHub. You should come talk to me. And really the nail in the coffin was that um, my partner, I was kind of relaying this to her and just saying, this is wild. Like Scott's telling me about this thing. And now like the CEO has emailed me. I think it's, I think maybe I should go talk to them. And being that uh, she is a data nerd in the same kind of circles that we are, she instantly pulled up chat logs showing that in August, you know, four months before this, she, like, here's a Wired article. She told me that I should go talk to them. And so, like, you know, small world the long is small. Game. Exactly. And it really seemed like it was uh, destined to be. And so I joined as the fifth full-time employee. And it was absolutely the best decision I have ever made um, because... After spending many years at Red Hat, I decided that Red Hat at that time was the best company I'd ever worked for. But I thought that with a smaller team of like-minded individuals, we could do something even better. And I wanted the opportunity to build the company that I wanted to work. Mm -hmm. And I feel very fortunate in saying, you know, everything may not have been kind of exactly to the specification, but everyone there kind of has shared with me that they have a very similar sentiment. That's super cool. So I do, I want to go back to some themes that that I picked up on in that, in that story. So th there were a few. One that I was interested in, in asking about was uh, consulting. Uh, this idea of being able to travel around, get, get access to a lot of varied problems, but yet, you know, kind of have the opportunity to pull the common threads through. Mm -hmm. do you, how much do you, do you consider that to be um, 
I don't know, useful or, or shaping your career? Is that something that if people have the opportunity to try out for a while, you'd recommend? I absolutely would recommend it. It was really, really foundational. Uh, and I didn't think that it would be at first, but it exposed me to lots of larger scale problems. And at a fundamental level, if a company is bringing in a third-party consultant, it's because they have problems that they don't feel that they can solve internally. And, mm -hmm. you know, this isn't like, uh, you know, the way that folks are kind of encountering gig work right now. It's, I mean, it's much more focused than that. Like this was, you know, a major like mall retailer would be going, okay, we know that we need to now have a serious online presence in the year 2015. What should we do? And, you know, Red Hat's not going to provide them with any like software to kind of manage that, but they're going to have questions about how they structure the systems, how they deploy everything. And fortunately, because of the repeated practice and having to run through a lot of the foundational pieces, you know, like helping an organization get set up with bootstrapping a whole data center, um, it meant that you have a lot of flexibility and you hear the customer's perspective of how to solve problems. Mm -hmm. So, you know, instead of it just being like one day after another of having the same discussions where, you know, somebody wants to solve problem Y, but they're suggesting doing X, uh, you're actually hearing, I want to solve Y, but I want to do X. And then another customer going, well, I want to solve Y but I want to do W. And then the third customer going, well, I want to solve Y, <laughs> but I'm going to do V. And it kind of builds out that graph in your mind of being able to go, here are all of the different ways that like from one node, folks mentally diverge into these other places. And so it like, had I not gone through consulting, I wouldn't have not worked on the systems that build major motion picture movies. I would mm. not have run or been involved with the design of you know, Fortune 100 websites. You know, it's just you get exposed to a lot of problems that you're brought in on because of domain expertise. And you know, there is a certain aspect of fake it till you make it. I mean, <laughs> I, I will tell you, not every one of my colleagues uh, has uh, the same degree of technical acumen, but you know, we kept everybody kind of employed. And if you're willing to kind of to, to one of the things that, you know, you cite from Malcolm Gladwell's sort of idea, if you're willing to put in the 10,000 hours, you'll get there, but you have to be kind of putting in the time and the work. And mm -hmm. it's just an opportunity to diversify what you see in those 10,000 hours. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me to think about. It's like on one hand, I could imagine it being more shallow of an experience, you know, shorter term engagements, you know, mm -hmm. jumping around um, as opposed to really going deep on the same product for a while. But on the other hand, it's almost like, you know, it it, it doesn't seem like you're that much of a, a generalist. It's not like you're, you're like a general practitioner physician but you you tend to get called in when it's more like you know dr house you know there's something mm -hmm. 
there's something really like weird and strange or you know it's it's too big for for the local talent and that and that strikes me as deep so it's kind of kind of cool i could definitely imagine that being a really good um good thing to have along the way yeah i'm actually really happy that you touched on that aspect of it because i've been thinking about it a lot you know since you kind of asked me to do this because mentally i do consider myself a generalist like i don't think like sure i'm quote unquote into linux but like beyond that like i'm not really a kernel developer like Hmm. yes i've submitted patches but it's not like what i do day in and day out and you know i'm not really like no one should ever really run code that i write like i'm not a good (laughs) developer that's that's not my wheelhouse but at the same time there is a certain degree of in the comparison that you have of like dr house being there are like the reason why you bring in a general contractor if you're trying to build a house is because you don't the customer doesn't shouldn't know every single thing that they need like imagining a world where if I had a medical problem, I have to know every single specialist or I have to know what is even available in terms of like domain disciplines for every single specialist. That's really daunting. Mm -hmm. But the areas where I've seen both companies and knowledge be most successful is where you have the, not gatekeepers, but more, uh, like super nodes or, or highly efficient routers, the folks mm-hmm. that can go, ah, okay, the next hop you need to get to is over here. And you know, I, I may not be able to solve your problem, but I can get you to that, or I can help make that connection, or I can give you like some breadcrumbs that help you do the next level of research. And I think having those folks in your organization and kind of in your network are really useful and that's just kind of where through happenstance i've found myself over the years i yeah yeah actually so i'm glad glad you touched on that because that's going to be the the second theme that i that i wanted to get into it sounds like your your personal network that you developed over time and that you know you spent time uh you, you spent time with when you were traveling around the country is really really important to you mm-hmm. um how yeah how was that developed and and how do you how do you think about that as related to your career obviously it seems like that was part of the one of the puzzle pieces and and getting you into core os but how do you think about that well first off it's very humbling like i i think that for the average individual like if you're sitting just kind of listening to the radio or listening to a podcast and like in in my case i was listening to um, NPR News a couple of weeks ago, and I recognized the voice that was there in an interview. I was like, who is that person? And it turns out, oh, guy who I used to work with at the census has gotten a huge promotion or has kind of leveled mm-hmm. himself up over the years. And it's interesting where if you encounter other folks that are passionate about their areas of domain discipline and you have earnest conversations with them where you're interested in genuinely solving the problems that they've got and are willing to find things to be like just fascinated about with the 
things that they're trying to do, there's a lot of mutually kind of beneficial conversations that can happen. And a lot of serendipity just occurs. Like, I mean, hell, today I went to the dentist shortly before we talked. Last time I went to the dentist, he had a 3D printer there. And I was like, oh, <laughs> crazy. You have an SLA printer. Blah, 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 blah. What's going on? And he's like, oh, you know about those? I was like, oh, yeah. You know, mostly I do fused deposition modeling, but blah, blah, blah going on. And we sat and chinwagged for a while. And I learned <laughs> all about how, like, the company Formlabs, who makes consumer 3D printers, also makes 3D printers specifically for dentists. And oh. now that's how they're doing like mouth guards for like Invisalign type stuff. Yeah. They literally they use the uh like scanning equipment that they already have to take the x-rays for your teeth, only because they're doing it in a 3D way, they're building a 3D model of the inside of your skull. <laughs> and then they can take that and the problem of then making Invisalign type uh, inserts is really just take this model and then mutate it through a certain set of steps and make checkpoints mm -hmm. of those places. And then, you know, okay, print out all of these and week one, you put in this week two, you put in this. And, you know, I can't, so today I had my follow-up, you know, after kind of a number of months and, after a bunch of more talking and stuff, as I'm leaving, I'm explaining an art project that I'm working on. And he's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I just have this, like, old anycubic photon. I could never really get it to work. Do you just want it? Uh, 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 sure. And so, you know, I just kind of stumble across new things to hack on and play with. And it's all serendipity it's being interested and kind of being willing to ask questions about other domains and being interested in like investing the time and the care and you'd be amazed the sorts of outcomes that stem from that yeah no that makes a lot of sense and and kind of tied to this uh sort of this other theme is is that you mentioned DEFCON and uh, the hacker community. Mm -hmm. how, do, how does that play into your, uh, you know, friend groups and, and network and professional life? So it's been immensely important and, and less honestly about the technical aspect. And it's more important because it's a group of individuals that have the same motivations about wanting to learn everything that they can about the world in the time that they have. You know, for some people, it's really wanting a generalist sort of view. And other folks, you know, they, they want to be the absolute insane domain expert. And at the same time, we still all have like a general level of curiosity. And so it's it creates forums where people are very excited to share their interests and share what they're working on. And for me, it was the inroads into a community like that. There are many, many communities where you can still have that sort of interest in intera interaction. You know, in the past 15 years, like 
there's been really the rise of maker communities, maker spaces, hacker spaces, things like that. And you know, those are you know great avenues to kind of walk in as somebody without a lot of domain expertise and just mm -hmm. explore and learn. And you know, I was really, really involved with the hackerspace HackDC. I mean, I was actually the president of it for a few years. And um, when I had free time, I would often just hang out. The reason why I would hang out there is like somebody comes in and they are working on a microcontroller or they have, you know, before the uh, advent of a lot of modern 3D printing, when we were all kind of building rep wraps and rep straps and all of that, the only place where you could get good blue LEDs, like, or hmm. not blue LEDs, but blue lasers was specifically out of uh, Blu-ray players. So hmm. we actually had uh, a network of folks that were always on the lookout for broken Blu-ray players. And then we would disassemble them, pull out the lasers. And, you know, so circa 2010, um, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, my pal Elliot, um, who's the managing editor now of Hackaday, um, he like would just sit and build power supplies and like set up these uh, kind of crazy laser setups. And this other guy, Dan Barlow, would then go, oh, well, it's really cool that you've done that. But have you ever worked with Galvos? And I'm just like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And next thing I know, he pulls out um, this setup where for anyone who has never worked with uh, Galvos, you know, it's uh, multi-axis mirrors that are designed to redirect a laser to paint with it. And it's actually how the graphics were originally done on like uh, uh, asteroids, like the arcade game. And so at that point, you've got peanut butter mixing with your jelly and Elliot's got these lasers. Dan Barlow pulls out, you know, his Galvos and we are painting all over the walls with these definitely not eye safe blue lasers where, you know, we're trying to just see what we can do. So the hacker community is all about like ripping things apart, playing, exploring. And I feel very fortunate to have found so many great human beings that share a lot of the same values and interests. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of those communities tend to be really welcoming. I know, I know for, for a lot of people, especially in, in our fields, I think, I don't know. I don't know if I want to really necessarily call it shyness, but I think that's certainly the tendency is that it's like, you know, makes more sense for me to just you know, put my head down, work more, not necessarily get out there because, you know, they're, they're not going to want to, you know, meet me. I don't know what I can bring to the table anyway. But, you know, I think like you say, right, like like so many people in these communities are incredibly welcoming. They do like meeting new people. They like to teach um, because the that curiosity part is so core to um, to the, the that personality, to the that that like, you know, that 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 central central aspect and and teaching is such an important part of of learning you know it's sort of the the you know just the other side of the same coin and and i think teaching also helps solidify a lot of you know the thoughts and everything and and also helps satisfy that curiosity and so i do yeah so i, I do recommend people do what they can to to get out there 
Yeah, and also, like, you just knocked it out of the park with the idea of teaching as a way to solidify your own understanding. Um, you know, I have spent, like, through even just the Coros University stuff that I was talking about earlier, um, we would take folks from the team who weren't experts on a topic and just say, you know what? You know it better than still everybody else here. So as the trope goes, you know, you have one eye and the rest of us are blind. Like if you can <laughs> at least like level us up a little bit, we all are better at seeing what that next hop is in exploring further. And in the side effect is that you then, as you're trying to find the words to explain the concept, it requires you to frame an idea in a few different ways. And through that idea of practice, it really makes sure that you have a good sense of how to externalize the concept. And especially you know, if you are then in a consulting situation where you have to keep explaining the same kind of topics over and over again, you keep getting new classes. And when I say that, I mean like, hey, you know, we just have a new freshman class who mm. has never heard any of these concepts before. So let's try it again. And then, you know, we can <laughs> see what resonates and what doesn't. And so you get a really good feedback loop for refining uh, the ideas that you're trying to convey. Oh, yeah, that feed feedback loop is so important. I think that's definitely the most important like cornerstone for learning and uh, skill acquisition. So mm -hmm. it's cool that you gave that a specific call out. Uh, going back to one thing that you said that, that I, I know I got sidetracked asking you to, to, <laughs> to go into all of these themes, but one of the things that you, you said that I really liked hearing was that you building core OS into, into the, the company that you always wanted it to be, like, how did you how did you go about doing that? Like, did you have like blueprints like in your mind or was it iterative or? Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about like how you how you build a company into the company that you want it to be. Well, first off, it was important that I came in when I did, because I was the first person, full, first full time person working for the company who was not a part of like the original friend group. Like a lot of the folks who were there, they had worked together at Rackspace. And so they already had a fair amount of rapport. Um, and well, the one exception to that is the first engineer, um, Mike, who's a brilliant technologist, Mike Marinoff, if you ever can convince him to work for you, you definitely want him. Um, he was actually in the Linux users group, the lug with Scott Nichols and Brandon and Alex, the mm. two co-founders. So once again, small world is small here. Um, but because I was the outsider there, it meant that they were both willing to challenge me on certain ways that I was doing things and vice versa. Mm -hmm. you know, within Red Hat, there's a very predominant culture that looks a lot like the open source community of the 1990s and early aughts. Like there is an aspect of if you just pound on the table long enough and hard enough <laughs> and louder than anybody else, you win the argument. And 
I had developed that as a very, very, well, I developed that as a habit, you know, as a mm-hmm. child, but it was reinforced by some you just of perfected it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and, you know, Art this form. Uh, colleague, John Bull, you know, pulled me aside one day because he had, he kind of joined a little bit uh, after me, but he had worked at Red Hat and he was like, yo, man, you don't work there. Anymore. You don't mm. have to do this. And it was lots, it was both some small moments of that, of realizing, like, I don't want to have to do this in order to do the right thing. Like, I don't want this to be part of the playbook for how we make decisions. So how about we don't do that? And that's also where kind of approaching the situation with vulnerability uh, Mm -hmm. becomes important too. Like, if I hadn't come in when we were a team of like six, seven people total, like it, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to build the rapport so that then through that rapport, somebody could go, Redbeard, tone it down. Like, <laughs> we realize you are passionate, but that's not the way to go about insert random thing. Mm-hmm. And another aspect of it was honestly just age. Mm-hmm. And and when I say age, it's not a specific age. It's the concept of aging. Mm-hmm. We all grew as people together. We both learned the idiosyncrasies and nuances that each of us had so that we could kind of build cohesively um, together as a team. But then also, because we then had that rapport, we felt comfortable calling each other out in kind of one-on-one situations and being like, yo, man, I, I know that your heart is in the right place. But instead of doing this thing, try doing this other thing. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. we were able to give each other feedback in a way that we trusted. And, you know, we, we are people. So, you know, it was not always successful. And I, for the first two years that I worked there, I was convinced that the first engineer who I mentioned, Mike, I thought he hated me. I thought he just (laughs) hated me so much. And there was a certain degree of like, well, man, piss on him. I don't, I, mm-hmm. I don't care, but still feeling a little bit of, a little bit hurt. Mm-hmm. And through kind of us interacting more and really being forced to collaborate and trying to understand both what each of us was trying to achieve and what the big picture goal was, it meant that we built kind of a much more solid relationship. And through having that foundation and being very, very intentional about the sorts of folks who you brought in, how you went about interviewing, and all of the kind of like aspects of really building a company, it meant that we were able to be kind of choosy. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, by the time Red Hat acquired us, because, you know, I boomeranged back to Red Hat through that acquisition. Uh, we were at about 150 people. Um, so, you know, it was a process of, you know, hiring somebody, you know, every every couple of weeks for, for years. And so mm-hmm. I've sat through a lot of interviews. And, you know, that was hiring that many people, not necessarily the number of interviews we had. So. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. So so you touched on a couple of things that, that I want to point out real quick. The, that, that 
level of communication, that level of teamwork, like the like the give and take and being honest with people. I think those are lessons that can be applied uh, everywhere and I think are really important um, for people listening to to this. Like having having a really good job and being successful on a team is a lot more than just, you know, putting out beautiful code. It often means uh, being able to work well with other people and and have strong relationships. And so I think I think what you've just talked about here is is a really important things to keep in mind because they, they should be possible most most anywhere to get to that level. But you're now touching on something that I'm also super interested in <laughs> and which is what were those interviews like? What were you looking for? How did you how did you know when someone was the the right person to bring on into your team that you were, you know, protective of? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I it resonates with me especially well because one of the things that I did at CoreOS was I bootstrapped a bunch of the teams. So, you know, I created our sales engineering team and our consulting team and, uh, you know, started the support team, uh, kind of built up and managed the infrastructure team. And the kind of theme across a lot of those was that personally, much like Eric Gradman, I would rather bring in folks who have the kind of Joel Splosky idea of smart and gets things done. Mm-hmm. One of the best, best interviews that I ever had was, you know, I, I have a, a number of stock interview questions that I like asking because you know, one, you get a apples to apples comparison across candidates, you know, when you mm-hmm. can ask the same questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I like asking weird questions. <laughs> okay. I mean, one of my favorite ones is what's a piece of software that you just hate, that you despise, that you cannot. And, you know, often folks will be like, uh, uh, mm, and they're unwilling to answer at first. And so I see, oh, well, you know, for me, that's Emacs. I just cannot stand Emacs if I, and, you know, I go off on a rant just to kind of loosen them up. But um, Emacs, though, like that's a, (laughs) but isn't that a great operating system? They just need a text editor. Exactly. <laughs> um, but the the question that, or the moment that sticks out in my mind, and the question that I asked was, you know, pick something that is, that you consider complex and explain to me how it works. Mm-hmm. And I start there very intentionally. One, to see if, see what the follow-up questions that I'm going to get are. Because mm-hmm. I did intentionally ask a pretty vague question. Mm-hmm. You know, the almost... In every situation, the follow-up question is, well, what technology do you want me to explain? And it's like, mm-hmm. no, whatever you feel comfortable with, like mm-hmm. explain it to me to the depth that you think that I would need to understand it. Mm-hmm. And you know, the average person, you know, picks, oh, I'm gonna go through and try to explain how, you know, a model view controller works or how mm-hmm. a database connection works, you know, mm-hmm. especially ambitious folks, you know, would make the uh, fool's errand of trying to explain how Paxos works or something like that. But this one guy who I hired and was so, man, he turned out great. He was like, can I explain how a carburetor works? I mean, I know it's not part of a computer or anything, but yeah, and I was hiring for our support team. So like, 
what I am looking for is the ability that you can take a complex topic and break it down and ask the kind of probing questions to see if the person on the other side of the conversation is following along, because that's critical when you're trying to interact with folks on a support case. Oh, I love and, that. And this guy, Will, he just like went super deep on it. And, you know, his background, well, he had never had a computer job before. In fact, he was working as a bartender hmm. at the time. But I, and this is where the idea of like Eric's comes in that I share. I would rather have folks who are passionate and are willing to learn how to do things as opposed to coming in with a, well, I am standing high atop Mount Self-Righteousness <laughs> and while the winds blow cold and lonely, I can see exactly the right answer. And like that is in a lot of ways a red flag, especially for small teams. When you have yeah. folks that are willing to go, I don't know what I don't know, but I am stoked to be here and you know, it's, it's that, I mean, okay. So we're self-selecting for our own personal traits. There is a human aspect of that, but I would rather, uh, you know, I guess the spicy way of putting it is I would rather teach folks religion than have to convert them. <laughs> I like that. I often refer to this as position, uh, versus velocity. Yeah. Um, but also, uh, good way. Yeah. Hey, Redbeard, this has been great. Where can people find out more about you online? Uh, I try to keep things pretty consistent. If you search for Brian Redbeard, you will definitely find me. Uh, you know, I post things occasionally on brianredbeard.com and on Twitter, and th those are both good ways to stalk me. Awesome. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Again, the pleasure is all mine. I really love kind of chin-wagging about uh, <laughs> fun, fun topics and educating people. Yeah, definitely. All right, folks, that's it for today. I'm David Gutman, and I hope you join me again next time for Junior to Senior.